Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on Shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, we can't get fooled again. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dumpster Fire Chats. We got some big news to take care of today. Of course, the Republicans uh, just got through their replace and repeal of Obamacare. It just passed the House. Paul Ryan is gloating. He's happier than he's ever been. Uh, happier than after doing the perfect P90X workout. Uh, I'm not quite sure if people have been following this story. I'm sure that you have. Uh, it obviously affects individuals with pre-existing conditions. Uh, basically, with the new uh, GOP plan, pre-existing conditions, they still have to to be covered by insurance companies. However, insurance companies can jack up the premiums of individuals with pre-existing conditions and uh, make their bills much, much higher than they currently are. Also, uh, with this new plan that just, again, passed the House, it still has to pass the Senate, um, the Medicare uh, expansion that so many individuals who voted for Donald Trump relied on uh, will be done away with by the year 2020. Um, So I want to start with an email here uh, that addresses this issue. It's about pre-existing conditions. It's extremely long, so I'm going to cut to the chase here. It's written in by Ashley. Thank you so much, Ashley, for writing in. The subject is pre-existing conditions. Uh, The email goes on to describe at the age of 25, uh, this woman was diagnosed with uh, Crohn's disease after a a series of other misdiagnoses, and uh, I'll just kind of pick up this email uh, towards the end a little bit. Uh, She's discussing the medication uh, that she was prescribed by her doctor. The medication is Remedy. McCade, a.k.a. the big gun when dealing with Crohn's disease. And uh, so it begins with the big gun is Remicade. It's a biologic chemotherapy drug. But it's not chemo. It keeps my intestines from inflaming because with any autoimmune disease, the body attacks itself. My colon can't tell the difference between good and bad bacteria and fights off the good stuff with the bad stuff. Remicade helps. It costs over $20,000 per infusion. I get an infusion once a month. Insurance is billed for about $250,000 a year for one drug of my regimen. That doesn't include a specialist visits, imaging, yearly colonoscopies, surgeries, and other drugs. 
Uh, she goes on, I'm on disability with Crohn's. There are many times of remission where there are no active flare-ups. My disability claim is up for review soon, and I could lose my Medicare coverage for being healthy for too long. Isn't that ironic? Healthy for too long, so she's going to lose her Medicare coverage, uh, even though it takes a $20,000 drug to keep me on my feet monthly. If I'm deemed healthy, I will lose my primary health insurance with the new pre-existing uh, waiver and living in Pence, formerly ruled Indiana. Don't worry, not all Hoosiers love Pence, I promise. Most of us hate him. The campaign had to file an ordinance in the neighborhood of his gubernatorial home to rid all of his neighbors' uh, Pence-must-go signs in their front yards before the inauguration for aesthetics. Well, it's very interesting to know. he was. I guess he was a bit of a snowflake when it came to individuals uh, and their Pence-must-go sign. Um, she goes on. She continues, I am rightfully worried that I will be unable to have health insurance in the future. I am worried that if I'm using up 200 $150,000 on one medication. These pre-existing safety nets won't be enough coverage. I'm worried that high-risk pools being set up as they were in the past means that I have to go uninsured for six months before I even qualify. I'm worried about a premium that my part-time job won't pay. There are 2.6 million patients who use Remicade worldwide. That's a lot of money. I'm worried that if I have to move to not be discriminated against in the market, that the next governor of where I move could take the waiver. There are no guarantees. That is frightening. I feel like I had to fight my way out of a coma to stay alive, only to have politicians tell me that my fight was futile. I have an amazing congressman in my district, Andre Carson, whose office has assured me he won't vote yes on this bill. But I also have a Pence 2.0 of a governor. I'm getting screwed, and so are millions of other people. Well, thank you so much for writing in, uh, Ashley. And your story is, uh, like you just said, it is like millions and millions and millions of other American stories. And now that the Republicans seem to be moving forward with their repeal uh, and replacement of Obamacare, uh, people who have pre-existing conditions, such as yourselves, are rightfully nervous. This is something we have to hold their feet to the fire on. And uh, my heart is with you. And we can only hope that everything uh, works out. Uh, although it is, uh, it's going to be extremely difficult going forward. You know, and we, we were just talking to Marcus Parks here before the show, and uh, we were discussing if mental health is covered, if that's a pre-existing condition. So there's a lot of questions that we have up in the air, and uh, and my heart uh, goes out to you. And uh, hopefully, the Democrats will be able to uh, do what they have to do in order to have this bill not pass uh, the Senate. Um, all right. Well, let's continue on here. I have. Uh, I have an, uh, an interesting email from Tom Paulson. That's his name. I uh, was referencing Steve King on a uh, on an episode recently. Of course, Steve King is the extremely racist congressman out of Iowa. And I said uh, Steve King would be able to keep his seat because Iowa is gerrymandered and redistricted in such a way that it uh, makes for an easy reelection uh, for Mr. King. However, Tom Paulson has a correction. He says, Iowa gerrymandered, not quite. He writes, hi, Ben. A few times when referencing Steve King, you've stated incorrectly that the district he represents is gerrymandered. Iowa actually does a pretty good job drawing districts. Here's an article that outlines it. The article outlined it. Very nice. Unfortunately, that means Steve King actually is representative of the folks in his district. I lived in Iowa, Des Moines, my whole life, and the Northwest has always been considered extremely conservative. Steve King probably represents those views. Hopefully, the views he said more recently have his constituents rethinking if he really mirrors their values, but I'm not holding my breath. Love you guys and what you do. And then he also said a Holdenator's hoe, of course, from the Roundtable of Gentlemen, uh, which... um, 
always, always pains me to say out loud. But I'm forced to because Tom uh, did such a great job of writing in. Thank you, Tom. Very interesting uh, to hear. And hopefully the people of Iowa in Steve King's district have had enough of his bigotry on social media. And if a Republican, if it must be a Republican, uh, the same way it must be a Democrat here in New York City, hopefully he gets primaried and kicked out of office as soon as possible. Um, All right, let's move on here to another email. It's from Stephen Jockham. Thank you so much for writing in, Stephen. And uh, the uh, subject is notes on Abe Lincoln's top hat and possible fireside chats input. Okay, so let's get to some of the notes here. He said, hey there, Ben. Uh, First of all, big fan. And now he wants to talk about the emoluments clause, one of my favorite words, emoluments. So he says, big fan. First off, the emoluments clause. Discussion of this has been going on for a while, so I want to get it straight. I'm a lawyer, so please trust me. Well, there's no way I'm not going to trust you. You're a lawyer. I mean, that's one of the most trustworthy positions in the country. Uh, perhaps <laughs> I've heard otherwise, but I'm, I'll, I'll trust you. Uh, the clause found in Article 1, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution requires that the president not financially benefit from his working with foreign state governments or their representatives. For example, if Trudeau, of course, he's referring to Justin Trudeau, the man out of Canada. For example, if Trudeau gives Trump a Fabergé egg, which seems like a very nice uh, Canadian gift. Trump can't keep it and has to turn it over to the National Archives or the Department of State. It's more of akin to an anti-bribery uh, statute than anything. I imagine the only reason that Congress hasn't brought him to task on his blind trust bullshit is because they want to build a solid case so that there won't be any wiggle room out of it. And with the amount of leaks uh, that the White House currently has, finding witnesses should not be a problem. Even then, impeachment takes a long, 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 very long time. Absolutely correct. Interesting. So the writer of this email believes perhaps they're just building the case against Donald Trump. Uh, and slowly but surely, they're allowing him to break the emoluments clause or allowing him to break the law. And uh, they're going to prosecute him at some point in the future. That's possible, I suppose. The email continues on. Think back to Clinton. The I did not have a sexual relations with that woman press conference was in January 1998. Congress then decided to impeach him in November of 1998. Impeachment is basically just the start of the trial on whether or not to remove the president from office. Absolutely. We've said that many times before. The trial only the trial only starts in January 1999 and ended in February. So even if we find out tomorrow that Trump has committed perjury, bribery, uh, bribery, 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 or other high crimes and misdemeanors, we still need the House to impeach him and two thirds of the Senate to vote him out. Very interesting. Thank you so much for that perspective. And uh, reiterating what we've talked about on this show before, uh, impeachment is just the first step, and it's a much more difficult, long process uh, than many people understand. Uh, The email continues here from Steve. Secondly, I want to let the listeners know that calling into your senator's and congressperson's office really works. Okay, thank you for the uh, inspiration and the positivity here. I know a lot of people feel very overwhelmed, specifically with the uh, ACA and, and what's happening happening uh, with the wall and immigration. A lot of people feel as if their hands are tied. So Steve continues, um, I work on the Hill as the youth's 
or Utes, as he says in quotations, say. So I know what I'm talking about. He's a lawyer, so you can trust him, and he works on the Hill, so he knows what he's talking about. I mean, there's no way this guy is lying. Every week, the offices tally up the calls and really pay attention to those issues that they are getting a lot of calls on. You can have a huge impact on a senator's or congressperson's agenda for the low, low price of two minutes a day or however long it takes uh, you to call them up and gripe slash praise slash warn. So please, if you want your senator or congressperson to vote this way or that, then let them know about it. Make your voices heard and not the voices of lobbyists, donors, and schmucks. Oh, I love the good use of a word schmuck. Also, get your ass down to D.C., Ben, to get some of that campaign funding going. Good luck in your upcoming race, Steve. Thank you so much, Steve. Uh, that is a great uh, a great email and absolutely correct about the emoluments clause. And uh, it's good to hear uh, from somebody on the Hill that calling your representative actually does work and uh, hold their feet to the fire. And we'll see what happens now in 2018 regarding uh, the Republicans and if the Democrats are going to be able uh, to uh, attach themselves to what's happened here and really take the uh, Republicans to task and uh, perhaps get a little bit more representation in the House and the Senate. Uh, Speaking of Democrats, this next email comes in from Susan and Kate. Thank you so much for writing in, Susan and Kate. And the subject is Dems need direction, and it's an exclamation point. So it's sort of like it's a subject almost written like Donald Trump. Need direction. Okay, the email begins. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for the fireside chats. Thank you for listening. I'm a super lefty liberal with slight libertarian leanings, and I really appreciate your take on current events. I've been listening to various podcasts, including Top Hat, since the election, and while everyone has good stuff to say, there still seems to be a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking going on with regards to the November election. I don't understand this. It's pretty obvious. The Democrats shoved a candidate down our throats who was less popular than her opponent, who the right had spent 20 years vilifying and somehow expected expected to win the election. We get it. Let's move on. The National Democratic Party needs to quit with the hand wringing and get to work. I live in Virginia, which is a key battleground state. Uh, In my particular home district, our state representative, who has been in power for 35 years and admits to himself he is a poster boy for term limits, announced his retirement this week. We have an awesome candidate to take his place. We have a gubernatorial election this year that is seen as a key indicator of how the country is going to swing in the next couple of years. And two really great candidates running for the Democratic nomination. And we have many, many, many progressives, disgruntled uh, Dems, and even angry conservatives who want to see serious change. But what do we see? Support from the Democratic Party. I go to the local Dems meeting and everyone is lamenting the lack of support. There are there are elections this year in 17 districts where Hillary won. The Dems don't even have a candidate running in some of them in the state where the vice presidential candidate hailed from. Last night at a local women's progressive action group I attend, everyone finally started admitting that we were all feeling like, what's the point? Nothing is happening. The Dems are not harnessing 
all this energy on the ground. They're still hand-wringing about stuff that went on six months ago. They elected a new leader who, as far as I can tell, short of cleaning out the upper-level management of the party, has done nothing so far. And, of course, they do that basically every cycle. Uh, they, they tend to clear out uh, many of the individuals who work for the RNC or the DNC. So that wasn't anything uh, particularly extreme. Of course, she's referring to uh, Tom Perez. So I'll continue. They elected a new leader who, as far as I can tell, uh, short of cleaning out the upper-level management of the party, has done nothing so far. Meanwhile, people like me are running out of steam for what is starting to seem like a lost cause. We can't keep making phone calls and writing postcards. We need serious direction. What do you think the strategy should be for the Dems starting today? What can be done to make them get off their... Uh, we have a series of uh, emojis and random signs. I'm assuming she means asses uh, together and start giving us money, tasks, direction here on the ground so we can actually get something done. Or is it over? Is it time for the Democratic Party to die? Uh, thanks. Susan, uh, it's definitely not time for the Democratic Party to die. We can't have the Democratic Party die. We need to have two parties in this country uh, because, as we're seeing with one party rule uh, that's happening right now in Washington and in every single state that has one party rule, uh, New York City here being being one of them with the uh, with the Democrats and many southern states having Republicans, uh, Republicans having a stranglehold uh, in the political world. Um, it, it's never good uh, when one party has all the power. I think Democrats have to go in, look at where the grassroots are, you know, look at the Elizabeth Warren base, the Bernie Sanders base, all those young individuals who want to come up uh, and want to be inspired and want to run for political office and stop stifling uh, their growth and stop uh, being so concerned with um, with reaching to, to constituents, um, reaching as opposed to leading. And that's exactly what's happening. If you look at the former governor who gave the address following Donald Trump's uh, address to the joint Congress, um, just an old uh, white dude, and the Democrats are just so desperate to get old white dudes back, uh, and they think placating to them uh, in that way is going to do it. The reason that Hillary Clinton lost, the reason the Democratic Party lost in 2016, the reason the Democratic Party has been losing seats uh, basically uh, ever since 2010 uh, is because they don't have a strong economic message that's resonating with the working class individuals throughout this entire country. And a lot of people want to uh, demonize uh, individuals uh, for going over to the Republican Party or for not voting at all, it's my firm belief that it is up to the politicians, it's up to the parties uh, to inspire and to get individuals out to support them because getting people out to vote is hard enough and you're not going to have people just, oh, we'll go and vote for them because they're there and I hate the other person so much. They're going to stay at home. It's people who are inspired. It's people who feel as if they're they're voting for a cause as opposed to voting against uh, something. And that's what happened in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. Uh, that's why the African-American vote was so low. That's why Donald Trump was able to get 30% of the Hispanic vote, which is quite astronomical in many ways. He, regardless of what he was saying, regardless of his rhetoric, uh, regardless of how asinine and shallow and completely vulgar in every sense of the word, regardless of all of that stuff, Donald Trump was being authentic, or at least the individuals who followed him perceived him to be authentic, and he mirrored their voices. And uh, I had a great opportunity today to go and participate in an environmental meeting, 
and I, I met with a couple of politicians here in Brooklyn, and I spoke to one of them after the conference, and uh, I just wanted to get his feeling on how you actually campaign, and uh, do you come up with your policies before and tell the constituents what your policies are, or are your policies more of a reflection of your constituents after you listen uh, to them, and after you, you don't speak, just listen to them, and that was his advice to me, which, you know, I can listen. I'm a good interviewer. I do like to talk, so it'll take me a, maybe a little bit of practice to just listen, although I think I can do that fairly well. And he was saying you have to listen and then have your policies reflect your constituents. Donald Trump, he did listen. I mean, granted, uh, the things that he was listening to were absolutely horrific in many ways, but he did listen. And Hillary Clinton, uh, they had their message. And they were sticking with it. It was very rigid, uh, as opposed to Donald Trump, which, again, was never uh, not a man uh, tethered to ideology like a bridge. That is exactly what you want with a bridge. If it's, if it's rigid, it collapses. Uh, but if it's like the, uh, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, it's able to withstand an earthquake uh, because it's flexible. And uh, that was the problem, and that is the problem currently still with the DNC, uh, with Tom Perez, of course, coming out and saying you have to be pro-choice or you can't be a Democrat. There's a man, uh, Jami, out of here, uh, out here in Brooklyn. He is a well-liked uh, city council member, and he is pro, uh, pro-life pro uh, personally. Um, you know, the Democratic Party does have a lot of diversity of opinions and a lot of diversity of thought. And, of course, not just on the abortion issue, on guns, uh, you know, things of that nature. The Democratic Party seems to go and uh, is doubling down on a rigid ideology. And what they have to do is be flexible. And, um, and of course, again, if this individual happens to be pro-life, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to vote uh, in a pro-life fashion. Uh, as we talked about on the last episode or maybe an episode previous, um, it is the job of politicians to reflect their constituents. And it would be uh, in their best interest uh, to do so. So So the Democratic Party has to start listening to the grassroots of this country, start listening to the basically 40 percent. Well, no, more than that, roughly 45 percent of individuals who didn't vote at all and get their thoughts and reflect their thoughts and mirror their thoughts. And then they'll have a chance to be a viable party in 2018, 2020. We can't just rely on the Republicans are horrible. The Democratic Party, when I say we, uh, the Democratic Party cannot just rely on the Republicans are horrible. So vote for candidate X. Candidate X has to be a personality. They have to have uh, a reason to run that is motivating. And they have to be able to um, Speak to the constituents in an engaging way that gives those people the motivation and the desire to go and canvas for them, as opposed to what we saw in 2016, which is exactly what you were talking about uh, in the email uh, regarding uh, not harnessing uh, the grassroots. Um, so that's my personal opinion on the Democratic Party. They have to stick around. I would love to see a third party spring up, obviously, uh, whether that be a Libertarian Party, a Green Party, uh, or maybe perhaps a Reform Party, an Independence Party. There are so many different uh, political ideologies out there that I would like to see have more uh, political clout. Uh, but at this point, um, we are still living in with binary choices, and the, the country desperately needs uh, to solidify a second party uh, in this country, make it viable, and the Democratic Party they have all the tools to do it. They just have to choose to do it. I thought it was a major mistake going with Tom Perez. They should have gone with Keith Ellison. Uh, he was the one who had that grassroots support. And, uh, and, you know, right now it seems to me as if the Democratic Party is going back to the old playbook of demonizing the Republicans but not coming up with anything for themselves. And they have to start doing that um, if they want to be, again, a viable party in 2018 and 2020. Because if we can't or if the Democratic Party can't, rather, uh, beat Donald Trump in 2020, uh, then the problems are much more sustainable. 
systemic and much worse than we ever could have imagined. So thank you so much for your email, Susan. And we got to keep this one short. I want to say next week or perhaps the week after, I'm going to talk about my policies here on the show. It'll be really exciting. I I can't wait. I'm doing so much. I'm learning so much about uh, politics and about the needs of Brooklyn and about the needs of New York City uh, in general, about pollution and all those kinds of things, um, which is absolutely fascinating. So so thank you guys so much uh, for tuning in. And uh, you're amazing. Uh, we love you very much. Keep on writing in at BenK721 at gmail.com. That's BenK721 at gmail.com. And uh, all right, we'll talk to you soon. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to CaveComedyRadio.com. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help. And yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.